Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and thank you so much for joining me for this episode of my podcast. Today is show number 278, which is actually the fourth show in a series that I'm calling 11 Skills Toddlers Must Use Before Words Emerge. If you haven't listened to the previous three episodes of this series, I'd strongly encourage you to do it because you'll get fantastic background information that really, really will set the stage and help you understand why we're talking about these things. Let me just kind of sum it up for you in one or two sentences if I can, if if you've not listened, or to kind of get you back in the groove if you've listened to those three shows and you're just, I always want want you to feel like you're picking up where we last left off. These skills are so important because sometimes when we work with a toddler who's not talking, and I, and again, you could be that could be as a parent, as mom or dad, or a grandmother. I, I get emails and comments from lots and lots of concerned grandparents, or you could be a therapist like me and be uh, seeing a child formally or officially on your caseload who's not yet talking, and sometimes. In any of those roles, we look at a kid who's one or two or older and not talking, and and we only focus on the lack of words rather than all of the things that have to happen before talking is a realistic expectation for a child. And again, we've spent the last three shows talking about these things, In the last couple of shows, I outlined the 11 skills to give you an idea of what to look for, and today we're getting to the meat of this series. And by the meat of that, if you don't understand that expression, I mean the the details, the down and dirty, here's what you do to make that better. And again, this is so important because you can't just jump to words with a kid who's not talking. You really have to uncover the root of the problem. There are some children that you could literally for months waste time (laughs) trying to do everything you can, including silly things that won't work because you're you're working on talking when the problem really isn't the ability to produce the words. The the problem started much sooner in development. And and if you here here's why we have to work on those things. If you don't fill in the gaps or if you don't address what's really, really the underlying issue, again you're wasting time. And and not only the child's time, which is the most important here, of course, but your time, your time as a parent. You know, so many parents will say to me, I like listening to your shows and I like reading your books and watching your DVDs and reading the post that you have at teachmetotalk.com because you go straight to telling me what to do. And here we're doing that today. I'm going to tell you exactly what to do for children who are having difficulty with this first foundational skill. But I do want to spend some time helping you understand why that's important because, again, if you, it, it is enough just to do it without really understanding it. And I know there are a lot of parents out there who 
when I work with them or parents I've worked with in the past or parents who listen to the show and they'll email me and they'll say, you know, sometimes I just kind of want to want to fast forward to when, where you tell me exactly what to do because, again, I don't really care about why I'm doing it. I just want to know what to do. And if that's you, boy, this show is going to be fantastic for you because we're going to have lots of specifics. But I do want to make sure that you know why you're paying attention to these things. All of these 11 skills lay the foundation. They set the stage. Whatever little analogy you want to use uh, to convince yourself that so many things have to happen before we hear a toddler's first words. And so we're breaking all of those things down. And again, uh, today's, today's topic or today's skill isn't really specific to one particular diagnosis meaning that if your kid has problems with this, he likely has this diagnosis. But today's skill really will focus on uh, children who are, are more than likely have severe or significant developmental challenges. And you probably already know that if you're a parent. You've already gotten a diagnosis. You certainly know that if you're a therapist and you're working with a child and you go in and you see that there's a medical diagnosis or, um, you know, that that could encompass physical disabilities or challenges or certainly cognitive or mental uh, implications associated with that diagnosis. Uh, there could be a whole range of things that this information, um, these strategies will be appropriate for. But again, it would be mostly for children who have these more significant challenges. Or if you were listening to the show proactively, knowing that your child has the potential to have some pretty um, significant challenges, for lack of a better word. I feel like I keep saying the same words over and over, but, you, but that's the best word for this. If you know that your kid is likely to be a late talker and you're doing everything you can right now, even when they're not even a year old yet, to address that potential problem. And so, again, these strategies are going to be pretty basic and pretty, as I said before, foundational, but they are so, so, so important because sometimes parents really, really miss this. You know, I've had families that I've worked with in the past who I've, I've gone into their homes or they've um, come to our office and they'll have, you know, their baby has a long list of medical diagnoses and, and it's pretty severe and certainly the child may have some physical issues and may not be close to meeting any gross motor milestones like crawling or walking or creeping or, you know, whatever you want to call it. Yet nobody's really told that parent yet, hey, your baby's going to be a late talker too. Or sometimes the outlook has been even more bleak than that with talking may not be a realistic goal maybe ever. And again, that's, that's, I hate, sometimes I hate to even talk about that kind of thing on this show because I, I always wear my rose-colored glasses and want to see things as, as positively as I can and, and want to always, always, always share hope with parents. But sometimes I'll meet a family and they may have seen lots of 
specialists, you know, doctors, um, you know, even different specialties within the medical field. You know, they're seeing a neurologist. They're seeing, um, you know, again, a whole host of medical folks. And then they've seen several therapists, and they're coming to me for, you know, a fourth opinion, a seventh opinion, you know, whatever that happens to be, or certainly earlier in my career when I was the primary therapist and saw, you know, kids just at the beginning. And even though I might have been the fifth or seventh or 15th person they saw, and even if those parents knew that there was perhaps a significant physical problem, they still expected their child to be able to talk like in that session that day. You know, they were coming to the speech therapist and they wanted to hear a word that day without really realizing that all of the things that have to happen first haven't happened and nobody really ever told them that or explained how language and communication skills develop in that way. And so parents, again, even though they they see their child, they know they're having some really obvious difficulties. I mean, there may have been significant feeding difficulties. Again, we already talked about the lack of gross motor or slow gross motor progress because of whatever's going on, like cerebral palsy or... Um, you know, any kind of hypo or hypertonia, you know, any difference in muscle tone. But nobody really took the time to say to that parent, hey, talking here is going to be hard for your child. Talking, as as I try to say when I teach conferences to speech therapists, you know, we should be telling parents talking is a long-term goal. <laughs> meaning that it's probably not going to happen anytime soon because we have so many things that we have to work on first, that we have to facilitate first. And so that's what this show is about. And it's about starting at that very basic level. And, and again, if you're a parent, you probably know already if your child can do these things or not and you may be tempted to skip over some of this thinking oh this show doesn't relate to my kid he's two he's doing this that's fantastic and and this show will not be relative or relevant for every single parent listening but there are a good number of parents who honestly say i want you to tell me everything you can about every possibility that I should be looking for with my child. And this is the very beginning, guys. This is where if a parent said this to me and if they had a child with moderate to severe, and let's kind of hang on that severe side, um, issues, this is where I would start with him, them. This is where we would begin our conversations. And most of the time, especially when children, again, haven't met gross motor milestones and they they aren't demonstrating some of the later skills that we'll talk about you know this is where we back up to this is the very 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 beginning and as a speech pathologist sometimes we we don't see children at who who have these kinds of issues or diagnoses because they're seeing the developmental therapist or they're seeing what and whatever you call the general therapists, the therapists who who look at all five developmental domains in the teacher people in your state. So again, as a speech pathologist, you may be a little bit to, to kind of skip over some of this and think, oh, I don't have any kids right now that that this will relate to or apply to. 
let me just encourage you to still listen because you never know what curve your career is going to take. You never know how your program will uh, deliver services in the next year sometimes or five years and you never know if you're going to take a job at a different agency a different place or if you're a private practice if you suddenly will develop a niche for treating these kinds of issues and again this is really uh, foundational information it's very very the, the very very beginning as I've already said so it is super 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 important that you have these ideas in your repertoire so that you can share them with families when you need them or friends how many of you as, as therapists have friends and acquaintances who will call you who will track you down who will stop you in the grocery store or at church or just you know at your at your own child's soccer game and say, here's what's going on with my child. Do you have any ideas for me? So this certainly is something that I want you to think about as a therapist, even if you think right now I don't have any kids that this is really, really um, going to help me with today. Now, the first skill, if you'll think back to two shows ago when we were going over all the skills, this is skill number one, and it's responds and interacts with environmental events. Or, And I've softened that wording a little bit to just say, with things in a child's environment. Now remember that this skill refers to a child's ability to react to and respond to incoming sensory information. And so let me restate that in everyday language so that we can all understand it. And again, as a therapist, now remember, when you're listening to me talk about things, this can always turn into your script and your words that you share with parents. And these are the words that that I use when I'm talking with parents directly and certainly how I've come to explain things so that parents understand it. And certainly if you're a parent listening, hearing a phrase like incoming sensory information may be a little bit overwhelming. So let's just break it down and use everyday language here. I'm talking about things that a child can see, can hear, can touch, can feel, can hold, can manipulate all of that information that we take into our brains with our eyes, our ears, our hands, our bodies, all of these beginning sensory experiences that all of us have from the moment that we are born. And so the kinds of skills that we are going to facilitate at this phase, you know, we might call it something a little more technical like alerting or attending. But when I talk to parents about it, I really use words like looking at, reaching for, grasping, holding, mouthing, waving objects, banging toys, those kinds of skills. And again, if you're a speech pathologist and you're thinking, I don't know what this has to do with language, or if you're a parent kind of thinking that too, you're thinking, I thought this was going to be a show about teaching my baby how to talk. I'm not sure what she's meaning when she's saying all of these words that sound like something he does with his hands. Guys, this is even where language begins. Children have to understand how to how to interact with what's going on around them. Otherwise, they're pretty internal. And again, we can't really measure what's going on in the, that little brain, But but let me just say, sometimes we significantly overestimate what a child can do when there are physical limitations. And so parents might 
see a child who can't, like I said before, stand up or crawl, creep, whatever word you want to use, or walk yet, but they still assume that their thinking and learning and understanding when perhaps that's not really what's going on. And again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't give children benefit of the doubt. And there's a whole movement called presume a competence, which means that we we certainly will give children credit for things even if we, we well, let me just, let me back up. <laughs> let me just back up because I'm about to talk myself into a hole here and I can feel it. Unless we have evidence, strong evidence, that a child understands words, we can't really assume that he knows what we're saying when we talk to him. And how many times will a parent say, when you ask them, how well does your child understand language, they'll say something like, oh, he understands everything, when that is not true at all. And I know I've talked about this previously on the show, so if you've you've heard that little line before and you're a parent, you're kind of sick of me saying that, you know, I'm sorry, but it's true and it's what therapists see and what we hear from parents. And my point here is we can't give a child credit for things that we absolutely do not know that he or she can do for this reason only. When we overestimate a child's abilities, we begin to work with him or her well above their developmental level. So let me reword that and say that again if you've not thought about it. When you assume a kid can do something that he or she can't really do or something that's not even kind of emerging yet, But you give him credit for it because you think, well, surely he knows that or surely she understands that or mom says she understands everything. When you you start at a point like that and you really haven't seen much evidence that that a child, again, all the things that we're going to talk about in this series, that that they're, and and let's just for the sake of keeping the example consistent, let's just talk about it with understanding words. If you don't see evidence that a child can follow directions or or look when you say a person's name or an object, you know, if, if you can't see and definitively point to a firm example of when that happened, you really do not serve that child well at all by overestimating what he can do because then you don't ever go back and teach him to do what it is that he can't do that you thought he could do. Does that make sense to you? I hope it does. And then what happens is you start at a level that is unrealistic for that child. And then you wonder, why am I not getting participation here? Why am I not seeing any progress? Or parents will say things like, I am doing everything that you said to do, and it's not working. Or a parent will say, well, you're telling me to you know, do these kinds of things, and I already know that. That hasn't worked. Most of the time when that happens, it's because what we're working on with a child is too hard. We've started at a level that's completely unrealistic. And so when that happens, we have to um, back up. And if you've heard me give any kind of live 
presentation or if you've listened to this show a lot, you've heard me say that phrase, back up, back up, back up a lot because I think it's something that we should constantly think about and any time whatever we're working on with a kid, that they're not getting it, that we're feeling like, you know, oh, this is going nowhere. We should always hear in our minds a little voice that tells us what you're working on is too hard or else he would have already gotten it. So we have to back up to a level where a child can be successful. And so sometimes with some children, and again, we're we're mostly talking about children with severe delays, we have to back up all the way to the beginning where we are really saying, okay, I am just going to start at the most basic level I know and be sure that a child can do the kinds of things that we're talking about here. And let me just say, too, this the things that we're talking about are really, if we were going to assign a an age equivalency or a developmental level, it would be kids who are in this birth to six-month range. Now, sometimes as therapists, we feel a little um, reluctant, that's a good word, a little bit reluctant to say to a parent, your child really is functioning at a three-month developmental level or a six-month developmental level because it, it, it hurts. It hurts the parent's feelings. And, you know, I will just do about anything I can to avoid hurting a parent's feelings when I am assessing a child. But, guys, we've got to be truthful and honest and objective when we're talking about these things with parents. So sometimes, again, this is mostly for children who are who are more significantly impacted. You know, we need to have those conversations and say, you know, this is where he's functioning and I'm not saying that there that we can't get better because again that he can't get better because, you know, as a therapist, why are you doing this job if you don't feel like every child can make progress? You know, that's why we're drawn to this because we feel like we can make a big, 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 big difference. And so you're not, sometimes we're reluctant to tell parents this information because we don't want to, again, break their hearts. But we have to share the information so that they will know this is where I have to start because, you know, it's it's where a child is. Sometimes, you know, you just have to be almost painfully honest with saying we have to start way back at the beginning and way back at the looking at the skills that, that should have come in. And it doesn't really matter if a child is 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, four years old. If he's at this level, it's where he is. And so we have to always, always, always meet a child where he is and, and start there. If you don't start at the goal, you start at where a child is currently functioning. So for some children... This is where it's going to be. So let's talk about exactly the kinds of things we can do. Now, remember here, when we're talking about children in this level, exploration is really, really, really going to be the word that should drive everything we do. We want to do everything we can to give a child things to explore, sensory experiences, learning experiences. And, again, some of you I know want to kind of push stop because you're thinking, I thought she was going to tell me how to teach him how to talk. Unless a child can interact with his environment and unless he understands what's going on around him at a really, really concrete, beginning, basic level, you're never going to get to words because that foundation just is not there. There's there's nothing for him to build upon. So we have to start here at this level. 
So when I'm working with a family like this I'm, I'm who has a child like this or I'm, I'm consulting with them through Skype or however I'm interacting with them, I talk about let's look at what you have in your home right now that will promote this sensory experience. And again, remember, we're talking about things a child can see, things a child can hear, things a child can feel or taste because mouthing is a really, really important developmental skill. We want kids to know how to get things in their mouth. And again, we're talking about children at that birth to six-month level where that mouthing is developmentally appropriate. Babies love to to suck their fingers, don't they? And sometimes you'll see a baby get their whole hand, get a whole hand in his or her mouth. And that's developmentally appropriate when we have a, a child at this um, earliest level. Now, if you have a three-year-old and you're thinking, oh, I, I've been telling him not to put his hands in his mouth. I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to go ahead and let him put his hands in his mouth. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about children who, again, are functioning at that very um, earliest developmental phase. And for some children who end up having pretty significant feeding issues, a lot of times therapists who specialize in feeding will say, you know, they really didn't have enough experience with um, normalizing sensation in their little mouths. And so children who end up being tube fed may, um, and, it, and if they have a physical limitation too that would make it really difficult for them to get their own little hands in their mouth or bring even a toy to their mouth, they miss that. They miss that opportunity to develop those normal sensations, that a desensitization of the gag reflex so that food can be on his tongue and he can swallow it without wanting to spit it back up. You know, that's an important developmental phase, an important developmental skill that babies learn so that they can go on to eat solid foods. And so all of these things that we're going to talk about, again, really, really build upon each other. And so if a child has not acquired uh, this ex or, or the learning from this kind of experience, we do sometimes need to kind of back up to this level and make sure that they have um, at least have been given an opportunity to develop these skills. So let's back up to this vision piece, things a kid can see. And let me just say, too, here, interacting with things in his environment, today I'm really talking about things, toys, uh, other kinds of experiences like music. And I'm not really going to talk about people because next show we'll talk about responding to people because, boy, is that a topic that I could probably do, you know, three years of shows on because it's so, so important. But today we're we're doing the first part of that, which is just responding to anything. And again, people, people are a big part of that. Babies respond early. Day one, we want babies looking at their moms and dads and responding to other people. But remember today we're just going to talk about it at an even more concrete kind of level with um, things and with objects. So let's back up to what people, what babies, what toddlers we would work on here, what they can see. An unbreakable mirror is a must-have for working with a toddler or baby or child. Uh, let's just say child from here on out. <laughs> working for a child at this developmental level, 
tummy time is huge and again I could do a couple different probably a couple of shows especially if I had an OT or a PT to come on with me and talk about how important tummy time is and that develops core musculature that children are going to need to be able to have the strength to sustain connected speech and again that's a little bit technical for this show but just know that even developing your body muscles really really impact communication skills as a child gets older and so the the purpose here for tummy time again is all of that but let's kind of talk about it from the cognitive perspective which is again where language originates that that those cognitive processes that remember we talked about a couple different a uh, couple shows ago that sometimes when a kid isn't talking the parent assumes that something wrong with their mouth and a lot of times I think I said it on the show the parents are focused on the wrong body part <laughs> it's really a neurological uh, a process or event that we should be focused on with words originating and communication originating as a baby thinks and in a baby's brain and so here when we're talking about a mirror the reason we would want a baby to do that is we're really stimulating the part of a baby's brain where he processes visual information and again from kind of to tie that in with communication uh, and cognition there's also the social component to that we want him to see that adorable child in the mirror and smile which is himself right we want to see him want to look at himself and think that that's interesting and cool and be attracted to human faces especially his own you know we want him exploring like that so an unbreakable mirror is a great activity a toy choice for parents with children in this phase and so even if sometimes a parent will say to me well I used to have one when he was a newborn but then I put it away and so I'll say to a parent look if a kid is still developmentally in this phase it doesn't really matter how old he is we have to meet him where he is and so if this is where we're where we still are developmentally and where we still need to work you know so be it so sometimes I'll say to parents after I meet with them or they'll say to me man I got to go back and get those baby toys out I thought he had outgrown those because he's had a birthday or I thought those weren't good anymore I thought I should give him something harder that maybe that would be what would kind of get all of all of these skills going here I thought that 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 I just haven't given him mature enough toys and again let me just say sometimes backing up is the very 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 best thing that we can do for a child so unbreakable mirror if you have a kid who's in this space you've put the mirror up get it back out if you feel like oh I don't leave him on his stomach a lot or you know he he's not really doesn't like it whatever whatever could be going on you can have the mirror where if he is sitting up that he can see himself you can position it so that when he's in a little bouncy seat or a booster or his stroller or uh, his high chair whatever kind of seating arrangement you use you can certainly come up with some way to get a mirror there so that he can see himself and remember again what we're doing here we're stimulating all that visual input we want him to look at things we want him to explore visually so other things that children can see that would be mobile so things that we had again when we think about in cribs anything like that that would be interesting that would hang for a child to um, look at certainly books 
early books with black and white pictures are really intriguing for newborns or for children in this developmental phase because certainly children with visual impairments who um, have some visual acuity there, they can see, but we're just trying to strengthen those um, that ability there. So black and white pictures would be easier, but certainly color, anything that's full for a child to look at. Any kind of soft doll or animal, uh, sometimes those sweet little cloth baby dolls will have bigger faces than the rest of their bodies, and that's pretty intriguing for a child in this developmental phase. You know, they are we are hardwired to look at faces and to notice faces when we come into this world. So we certainly would want to build upon that internal or innate interest there. So those are things you can see. So anything that would be interesting for your child to look at. All right, now some parents here will say, oh, I'm going to put in, uh, how about a DVD? I'm just going to park and you say to work on things he can see. So let me just get him in front of the TV. Or they'll say, well, we already do that. He watches three or four hours of TV in the morning. Uh, you know, that's not going to be the best idea because he is not, he or she would not be able to process the language going on and something like following a show like that. There's cognitively, they're just not there yet. So I would prefer objects, and certainly your therapist would agree with this, objects and things, experiences that your baby can physically manipulate. And so you're not, the t, that just rules out the TV, right? There's no way for him to really do anything with that beyond looking. And so here you try to think about that too, with things he can actually touch and hold and manipulate. All right, so let's move on to things that, uh, let's talk about hearing or stimulating that auditory piece. You know, children who, sometimes a, a mom will say to me, he ignores when people talk to him. He doesn't ever pay attention to me when I call his name. Um, sometimes with that it is specific to language that children aren't really responding to words because they don't make any sense to them. But sometimes we will have a child that we see in early intervention where we have an unidentified hearing loss. So, and again, it could be, um, you know, there are different kinds of hearing losses, um, and we're not, we're certainly not going to get into all of that today because this is not a show about audiology. But some, and I know we talked about this last week of the week before on the show when we talked about the importance of making sure that your children don't have fluid or chronic fluid that just kind of hangs around after an ear infection, or it may not even get infected, they just have middle ear fluid. And we talked about how children can't really hear it sounds when, when that's going on it's it's they're like they're underwater so think about when you've been in a pool or in the shower and you you can't really you may know that there's some noise going on or know that somebody's talking but you can't really with 100% certainty say that you understand what they're saying and so that that's what I'm talking about here so we have to um and we're not talking about people yet but my point here is we have to make sure children can hear. <laughs> and you need to do your due diligence and rule out any medical issue to be sure that hearing is not a factor. And I could have said that back up with vision as well, with things a kid can see. If you have doubts that your child can see, certainly, certainly, certainly get 
an eye exam and you may say, oh gosh, I don't want to go to an ophthalmologist yet. I, you know, that's a little bit severe or I don't want to go to an audiologist yet with this hearing thing. Start with the pediatrician. Just talk to the pediatrician about it and say, this is my concern. Your doctor is either going to alleviate your fear or he will send you to someone who can alleviate that concern for you and alleviate might mean there's not a problem with that there's nothing going on with that that's not the issue or it could be for a child a child may need tubes to uh, clear out and consistently keep those ears free of fluid a child may need hearing aids and so we have to again always make sure that we are doing everything we can to address these kinds of sensory issues because again that's that's just a really basic need here if a kid can't hear he's not going to be able to understand what words mean or eventually talk he's not so we have to be sure we're ruling out that problem all right so back to what we can do though we need to be sure that we're giving children experiences where they have to learn how to listen where they have to attend to things that they're hearing in their environment so toys that make noise so toys and again remember how i talked about with the vision things i really want i really want a child to be able to explore with his little hands even something that he can hear so toys that crinkle or squeak or rattle or ring or music certainly is an important strategy here things that a child can listen to because we are teaching that ability to listen and again that has to come that that's basic guys that comes first and so when you have a child that you think is ignoring language or is avoiding language sometimes we have to kind of go back to the basics and start with environmental objects or events that will get his attention and really cause him to look at, listen to, pay attention to whatever it is that he's heard. All right, let's move on. We talked a little bit about mouthing and how important that is, but any kind of little teething toy. And, again, sometimes a parent will say, you know, of a child with who may be two with really, really significant disabilities, I've tried to let, I've tried to stop giving him things he can put in his mouth. And on one hand, I get that because, again, the parent thinks, well, he's two now and I don't want him mouthing everything. But remember what I said, we have to meet a kid where they are. So if they are still functioning in this birth to six-month range, and actually let me tell you the truth, mouthing is developmentally appropriate until a kid is 24 months developmentally. So we still need to be providing experiences that that – uh, where a child can get this kind of input. And, and they want it anyway. Even if you don't give them a toy that's appropriate for mouthing, they're going to mouth whatever they can manage to get in, get in their hands and to their mouth. So I talk to parents about that and say, would you rather him mouth something that you know is safe? And, you know, as therapists, we always use that word appropriate. Yeah, we would much rather that happen than them have to, you know, pick up a pen or, uh, you know, a uh, a dirty sock or any other thing that they might be able to reach and get in their little mouth. So I like those vibrating star teethers. I have, I should probably unstock in whatever company makes those. That's how many I've bought because I think it's a super, super uh, way to give a child that kind of stimulation when they're still really seeking that, that oral um, feedback there. Sophie the giraffe is another cute little teething toy that – 
many, many, many families already have, but anything like that that a kid can mouth. And remember, you know, we want children to explore that way. We want to meet their developmental needs, so we have to provide those experiences. All right, let's move on and talk about things that a child can feel. So these would be things that a kid can hold and that he can move, that he can learn how to move from one hand to the other hand. So, or, or even just touch. So anything like textured blankets. Um, I like those taggy toys. Do you know what I mean by that? Those are those toys that look like blankets, but they have those different textured ribbons um, sewn on the sides so that some of them feel rougher or smoother or silkier or softer or more coarse than other uh, materials that would be on there so you give a child a variety of things to feel anything like touch and feel books would be great here of course any kind of toy that they can hold like rattles a light length do you know what i'm talking about those little plastic toys that look like uh chain lengths and you can hook and unhook them any kind of squeezable toy is great here because again the kid can feel it and make it move and they probably also have some kind of sound there so that it squeaks or rattles or makes some kind of sound so again we're laying the foundation for cause and effect meaning i squeeze this toy and then it makes a noise so lots and lots of learning opportunities there some uh, bendy balls any kind of little textured ball would be good here and again you want to be sure that if you're especially for children who are still mouthing that when you're looking for objects like this that they are safe and that a child is not able to choke. So you want to look for those sides there. Let me tell you my winners for toys in this category. Play gems that, especially if a child still isn't very mobile or isn't mobile at all, having something that you can put over him either as he is on the floor on his back or in his stroller or in his bouncy seat or whatever seating arrangement you have there. Anything that he can reach out and touch and that he can see and that he can hear, we're giving him all of that incoming information and all of those opportunities to really, really explore. We already talked about mirrors. Um, and here, again, next week we're going to spend a ton of time talking about just how important it is to talk to children and to sing to children. So music is really important here. Those are all certainly winners as far as activities are for children at this developmental level. The key education pieces that when I'm working with a family who has a child that we've backed up to this point, I talk a lot about and, and say the word exposure, meaning that, you know, your kid can't, get to all of these things without you providing those for him. So if he can't look up at you and say, Mom, I would really like some more visual experiences today. You know, he can't do that. So we have to be on our toes and thinking, how can I expose him to things he can see? How can I introduce more things he can hear? How can I give him more things to learn to hold and touch and feel? And so, again, exposure is huge. So we have to provide those opportunities for practice. And here's another thing that I start to talk about with parents, with kids here, and again, we're going to talk a lot more about this next week, but just prioritizing interaction with your child. And it's very, very tempting for a child who is not communicative, and especially when we say, you know, this is what parents will say a lot. They'll say, you know, oh, my child is so good. You know, I can just get all kinds of things done, and he doesn't even make a whimper. He just entertains himself 
And then when I really start to question a parent about it, I realize that what's really going on is uh, mom has kind of parked him. And what I mean by that, he's in a swing or in a stroller or in a baby seat or even just in his crib, and there's nothing going on. There's no kind of incoming stimulation for him. Guys, when we are concerned about a child's development, that's about the worst thing we can do. We have got to provide those opportunities for practice. And then even if you're thinking, oh, I've given him something he can look at or something he can feel or touch or all the things that we've been talking about today, we still want to be sure that we are interacting with that child and checking in and talking to him and and responding to what he's doing so that that interaction, again, we teach it over time and it's meaningful that he can use his little voice to get our attention. And so even at this phase, when we're mostly talking about things in the environment. We really want to, as parents, be sure, and as therapists, you be sure you're talking to your parents about this, prioritize interaction so that a person <laughs> is still involved in all of these things that we're talking about. So let's talk for a second about what kinds of goals we would have um, that we would document if we were working with a child like this. And again, this is mostly for parents or mostly for therapists. Sometimes a parent will say, I don't care about what's written on that piece of paper. I don't, or a parent will say, he's not in therapy yet, or we're not doing therapy anymore. I just want you to tell me what to do. I don't really want to talk about goals. You know, it kind of feels like yada, yada, yada to a parent. And I get that. As a as a parent, you, if you're, especially if your child is in therapy, and even if they're not, you do need to be concerned about what's my outcome here? What am I trying to accomplish here? What what is what is the reason that I'm working on all of this? And so it is important to think about what your child is doing or the next thing you want your child to do in terms of goals. And certainly as therapists, sometimes we think about um, doing these kinds of activities with children who are at this developmental level, but we may still have something written on their IFSP or their whatever form you're using for uh, justification for services. Usually that's tied to how you're going to get paid. But, you know, whatever the report says, we may leave a goal on there like, He'll talk when you know that talking is, a, like we said before, a long, long, long way away. So what kinds of goals would we address here? Certainly um, next week we're going to talk a lot about the social interaction piece, but today let's just look at it from a receptive language or cognitive perspective. Exploring toys to set the stage for functional play. You could certainly say that. Or... Um, attending to environmental events as a prerequisite for understanding language. So many, many times you'll have to put what your what your focus is, your right now focus, so exploring toys or um, attending to environmental sounds. You'll put that and then you write something like so that. And that's where you tie it into whatever your longer term goal is. Now again, I don't usually do a lot of talking about specific goals or how to do your documentation because every program is different and every state is different. And so there's so many different requirements and I don't ever want to steer anybody wrong. So therapists, when they ask me a question like this, I usually say something like follow the rules, <laughs> do whatever it is that you need to do. 
But my point here is don't leave a goal on an IFSP or an IEP that is so far above what a child can realistically accomplish. So you wouldn't write a goal for words here because it's not developmentally appropriate. Talking is going to take some time to fill in these gaps and get all these skills to come together so that words become a realistic expectation for that child. So the kinds of things that you would write or that I would write would be the things that we've just talked about here. And again, if you need some specific help with that, with specific milestones, go back and look at whatever test you use and look at the very beginning, those very beginning skills. If you're using something like a criterion reference test like the Rosetti, you'll look at the skills that are in that zero to three month range or, or three to six month range. And you go back and you that's that's how you state your goal. That's how you write it and that's what you should do because it's a milestone. It's always going to be appropriate because all of our goals are based on what our expectations are. But then you 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 add uh, you know you 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 be sure that you are specific and talking about what it is that you are really, really, really trying to accomplish there and not leaving a really vague um unreachable goal because nothing is more disconcerting to a parent than every six months when they have that IFSP or, you know, for their yearly IEP for all the goals to be, if they're looking at, especially when it's in written form, goal not met or goal unmet or unattained or whatever word you say in your particular practice or agency or organization, however you write, goal not met, that is deflating to a parent. And again, we've talked a lot about, you know, that's not the kid's fault. That's, and you may say, well, is the, he, the kid's not making progress. You know, that's what it really, really is. Guys, you can write goals that are better that children really, really can reach, even children who are at this level with significant challenges. So we need to work on writing realistic goals and tying that into what we're really, really doing with a child and not leaving something that's, again, completely unattainable on a piece of paper somewhere because it just makes everyone feel badly about what's going on. And you may have tons of fantastic progress happening on a week-to-week -week basis, but you leave that goal written as it is and it feels a little undermining to a parent when they read it and just again, feel like oh, we're getting nowhere here when really there may be a lot more positive going on than you all are giving yourselves credit for. So take a look at those earliest developmental goals and, and think about how you can write it so that it reflects all of the fantastically appropriate activities and strategies that you are using with the child and again just to be sure that you're covering your bases on the other hand for parents sometimes as a mom you may be thinking well I'm not going to write a goal for him to hold a rattle if what I really wanted to do is talk you know how again how is that related Laura All, development works together and it's a sequence and so we need to have goals written like that so that <laughs> We can all feel a sense of accomplishment when we've checked that off. And you just have to know as a parent, you have to have just a big kind of talk with yourself and say, I hope we get to talking. And I hope that 
I will hear words from my sweet baby one day, but just know in your heart that a whole lot of things have to come first, and you want to see those things happen and get yourself kind of recalibrated so that your sense of accomplishment is not based on hearing that word or those words whenever that might be, that you too get excited about all of those other things that we have to accomplish before we realistically can expect to hear words. Okay, so um, I'm going to put most of this in written form on my website at teachmetotalk.com if you need to go back and look at this. If you are a therapist and you want to share this information with parents, you know that you can always copy any article from my website as long as you leave Laura Mahas and teachmetotalk.com on there and share that information with parents. And this, this will be a talk that I know that after therapists have heard the show, you know, I think a lot of there will be lots of opportunities for therapists to go back to a family and say, hey, we've been working at a level that's too hard for your child. We're going to kind of start over here. Or I know that we have this written on his plan for him to use five words, but honestly, that's a really, really, really long-term goal. We need to break this down, and let's be sure that we're on the same page about everything we need to do to move toward that goal, but that you are, are certain of things that you do on a daily basis are contributing to the possibility that that will be attainable but down the road. Right now, these are the things we need to focus on. And if you want the written version of this show so that you can share that with a parent, you know, a lot of times that's really, really valuable because it reinforces what you've been trying to say. And it also, again, kind of resets you with this is our focus, this is what I need to be working on. This is what I need to be talking about. I don't need to get into all that other stuff because the kid's not there yet. This is where I need to focus and this is this is what's this is how I can best serve this child and his or her family. All right, so that's it for today. Next week we're going to talk a lot about oh gosh, my favorite thing in the world teaching children to respond to people because, guys, that's what communication is. It's learning how to interact with other people. Um, so join me for next week's show. Hope you have a great week. Bye-bye.